Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we discover who is the bird of the year in New Zealand. Perhaps where this bird got so many of its votes, maybe it was just the consensus choice in the underbird category. Plus, the return of iconic rock and roll title, Cream. Everyone asks us, who's the new Lester Bangs? You know, it's always like the question that makes the eyes roll, because there is no new Lester Bangs, right? All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about Brazil. After a difficult campaign, former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is indeed the new president of Brazil. Here is my analysis of the result. All I can say that it was quite stressful for uh, you know to cover this election overall, and even with the result, I mean it's very narrow. Uh, you know, usually Brazilian elections are fairly you know narrow. I'm not saying that people usually win on a landslide, but we just had here a 1.8 percent difference between both candidates. Uh, Lula with 50.9 percent and Bolsonaro 49.1, which for you know a continental country like Brazil, this is quite small, the narrowest since 2014. Uh, where the difference was about three points, um, I believe. So, yes, it was a very confident victory for Lula. But, of course, we should never underestimate the power of Bolsonaro. I mean, literally half, almost half of the country voted for him as well. And he will still be around, I mean, literally as well in the Congress, in the Senate. A lot of governors that were re-elected or elected uh, came from his kind of uh, base as well. But, you know, it's it's Lula's night. I mean, mm. it is remarkable. Amanda was literally in prison in 2018 and he couldn't compete for president back then. Well, let's just look at Bolsonaro for a minute because there were lots of reports before the election that he would attempt to contest the results. Has he done anything like that? Very weird. Complete silence in social media. He didn't say anything. He didn't concede uh, defeat yet. Neither he nor his sons. You know, he's got three sons there in the world of politics. I mean, some of Bolsonaro's supporters, including Sergio Moro, the former justice minister and now senator, he's saying, well, this is democracy, let's move on. So we see some figures from the Bolsonaro camp that are already kind of conceding, saying, you know what, we'll be, we're, do, we're going to do strong opposition against Lula. And very interestingly, Georgina, a lot of the world leaders, uh, including in this case Joe Biden, he phoned Lula immediately. Uh, Macron, many leaders around the world, they were very swift uh, to congratulate Lula. I think there was a way to kind of avoid uh, that Bolsonaro will try to do something. And, you know, it's he's an unpredictable man. Uh, I can't say for sure what he's going to do. Uh, but for now, things are, you know, very quiet. And I think, you know, if the international community, you know, you know, keep an eye on Brazil. And now I think this would definitely help. But let's see later tonight, later today what Bolsonaro will say. I mean, there were reports of voter suppression. What can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, which is a big story, terrible story. So basically, it's the road police in Brazil, the chief of the road uh, police. He's very much a strong Bolsonaro supporter. And apparently in some cities, well, I can say about 500 or so cities, especially cities where Lula did very well in the first round, there were some suspicious operations on the road. So basically, the police would stop buses in the middle of the road saying there was a technical problem with the bus or, or whatever, 
really. We don't know the facts uh, just yet. So that could cause delay for people to vote. And those people, they, those cities are very poor. Uh, you know, cities, you know, where sometimes people have to move, you know, quite a long distance to go and actually uh, cast uh, their ballot. So I think there'll be an investigation to that. I think this would have become perhaps a bigger story even if Bolsonaro had won, but -hmm. but, but he did lose. But still, this should be investigated. Yeah. So let's let's break down these numbers. How did it pan out state by state? Yeah, well, as I said, you know, confident victory for Lula. uh, But, you know, it was not perhaps as great as some have expected, including the polls, uh, even though the polls were a little bit more correct uh, this time. And it's fascinating to see the division of, of the map. If you if you look at the map, Northeast completely went for Lula in huge numbers. I mean, some states he won with over 70% of the vote. But then you have regions of Brazil, including the agribusiness, center-west and the south you know, a very rich and wealthy region of Brazil, Bolsonaro won in all the states. And the southeast, where I come from, and is the most populous region, again, Bolsonaro did very well. Uh, but again, one of the reasons uh, about for Lula's victory is the state of Minas Gerais, which I've been telling a lot. A lot of people see Minas Gerais, Minas Gerais, which is the second most populous state in Brazil, as the bellwether state of Brazil. So whoever wins there ends up winning the election. And, you know, Lula won, I think, by... 50.05%. It's remarkable. So Minas Gerais continue with uh, this tradition. And even in my state of Sao Paulo, it's an interesting one. Bolsonaro won the state with 55%. But even if you kind of look at the map, uh, for example, I'm from the capital of the state, which is also called Sao Paulo, confusingly enough, uh, Lula won there. So we're seeing what is happening in the United States, where the big urban centers perhaps are moving a little bit more you know, to Lula and to more centre-left parties. But the countryside is huge in Brazil. I mean, it's, okay, you can win the urban centres, but that's not enough. So I think Lula and his workers' party, they need to think how to reach uh, those people from the countryside as well, Mm. which definitely didn't go for him this time. Mm. Because, of course, that's one of his stated aims. He says he wants to unite the country. How can he do that? It's going to be difficult. But, you know, he started well. I mean, in his victory speech in Sao Paulo yesterday, you can clearly see that he wants to pacify the country. Look at some of the key words he said. It's time to recuperate the soul of this country. You know, it's time to lower the guns. I'm going to govern for everyone. And he said very clearly, this is not going to be a workers' party government. Uh, because, you know, Lula was also elected because he he, ma- he managed to do a grand coalition. Look at his vice president, Geraldo Alckmin. If you're a follower of Brazilian politics, I mean, it was a bit of a surprise. They were v- rivals, literally. Geraldo Alckmin was from the center part, center-right party, PSDB in the past. You know, you could never imagine that they would be together in the same ticket in a way. Uh, so, you know, so far, and of course, in the coming weeks, we might know more news about his ministry. And I expect to see a lot of people from different uh, parties, not necessarily just leftist parties. He might have to move to the right because this was not a shift to the left, Georgina. Of course, a little bit, but this is not, we can't really say that most Brazilians are left now. Mm-hmm. This was just a lot of centrist voters who said, you know what, I can't 
can't cast a ballot to Jair Bolsonaro because you know he was a disaster in many ways uh, and and those people were not they, those people were not necessarily Lula voters in my opinion do you think that the corruption scandal that landed Lula in prison has that gone away are there still questions to be answered I mean will it impact on his presidency I don't think you impact I mean because he's being uh, you know those sentences have been annued uh, you know and, and quite a few of them I believe more than 20 uh, and by the UN as well so in that sense I think it's pacified uh, I, I think what we should look into it is of course some of Bolsonaro what he did in government because there's been a lot of suspicions uh, here and there so we might see this so there is even um, a lot of people are saying that Bolsonaro there's some some decisions he made they were put into uh, you know that nobody could know in a hundred years I think there was a special uh, law he did I, I didn't quite understand so Lula said this will be over so this will be revealed to the public mm. including his uh, vaccination kind of to know if he's being vaccinated or not so we're definitely going to be here uh, more of that as well and Fernando how will this win alter Brazil's standing on the international stage I think it's been an immediate change as well I think a lot of world leaders are kind of relieved that they can work with Brazil as well in all sorts of things because Brazil is an important global player. Look at the environment, for example. I mean, Lula did talk about the Amazon. He said that he wants zero deforestation. He says of the Amazon is Brazilian, but I want international cooperation. A completely different speech uh, than Bo- the Bolsonaro. And, and just look at how swiftly Joe Biden called uh, Lula, all the European leaders, the South American leaders. And Georgina here, of course, I said that Brazil is not a shift to the left, but we have to look at the five biggest economies in South America and Latin America are, you know, from the left spectrum as well. That's quite relevant. So Lula will have a very good relationship with countries like, you know, Argentina, uh, Chile, and even Mexico as well, which also has kind of a a, a leftist leader. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be international. I think he'll be very welcomed with open arms uh, by the world stage. Uh, And of course, by the US in particular. Absolutely. And and it's interesting. Some people are even joking. The US trying to help democracy in Brazil because in the past was the opposite. Uh, During the dictatorship, they were actually... Uh, you know, uh, they were kind of supporting our uh, our, our right wing uh, dictatorship, but co- now it's completely different. They're trying to save our democracy in many ways. And it is time to discuss another political comeback. Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be on the course to lead the most right wing government in Israel's history. Andrew Mueller unpacks the former prime minister's dramatic political comeback. He's back. Well, probably. Israeli elections being Israeli elections and Israeli politics being Israeli politics, the narrator of this explainer would be greatly obliged to you, the listener, if you'd hear all this with an implied refrain of as we go to air or at time of writing or whatever hedge against events you prefer. But it would seem that, following Israel's fifth general election in a little over three years, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be Prime Minister of Israel again. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking a fourth term in office. Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu appears headed for an historic fifth term. Election officials say voter turnout was at its highest level in 23 years. 
Even by the standards of a region renowned for unlikely comebacks from apparently terminal positions, it is quite the resurgence. A less obdurately, some might say boneheadedly, determined figure would have hung it up long ago. Among the factors mitigating against Netanyahu's return to the Prime Minister's residence appeared to be the following. He is 73 years old, he has already served five terms as Prime Minister, he is still on the hook on corruption charges which could see him imprisoned, and as a consequence of all the above, an electorally forbidding plurality of his fellow citizens are entirely sick of him. And yet... Here we appear to be. Exit polls and early returns suggest that Netanyahu's conservative bloc will command a thinnish but workable majority in the Knesset, perhaps 64 or 65 of 120 seats. A victory which, if its slenderness is confirmed, could well tee up yet another general election in reasonably short order. Any especially stressed Israeli cephologists craving a richly deserved holiday would be well advised to take it in the next few weeks before things fall to pieces yet again. Israeli governments are by definition coalition governments. Not once since the state's foundation in 1948 has a single party won an absolute majority. These arrangements are frequently riotously unwieldy, which is why they collapse so often. Israel's most recent government is an extreme but instructive example. Even to corral a perilously tiny majority, it had to not only get eight parties to sign on, but to persuade two prime ministers to take turns at the top job. Ironically, given the consequences of this coalition's collapse in June, pretty much the only point of agreement binding it together was a shared dislike of Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu's likely coalition will not be as diverse, but could plausibly be at least as rancorous and unworkable. The key partner for Netanyahu's Likud party will be the religious Zionists ticket, about whom it may be fairly said that there is a clue in the name. The religious Zionists appear on course to double their vote from last time out, from a little over 5% to a little more than 10%. That large global constituency, which has long found Benjamin Netanyahu quite the belligerent nationalist, has not seen anything yet. One of the stars of the religious Zionist bloc is Itamar Ben-Gvir, leader of one of its component parties, Otzma Yehudit, or Jewish Power. Ben-Gvir has been convicted for incitement to racial hatred... As a teenager facing national service, he was rejected by the Israel Defence Forces due to his political crankery. Indeed, one former IDF chief of staff, Dan Halutz, recently cautioned that Ben Gvir's ideas could sow the seeds of civil war. Ben Gvir has, at the least, been an admirer of Mir Kahan, an infamously ultra-hardcore conservative kook who, during his time in the Knesset in the 1980s, would often speak to an empty house as his disgusted fellow MKs walked out. Until really quite recently, Ben Gvir hung on the wall of his home in the West Bank settlement of Kiryat Arba a portrait of Baruch Goldstein, a lunatic who in 1994 shot dead 29 Palestinians worshipping at the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron. 
During this election campaign, Ben Gvir found himself having to clarify that he no longer supported expelling his fellow Israeli citizens, who are also Arabs. Ben Gvir at least attempted a measure of conciliation at his election night party. Addressing those who did not vote for him, he declared, We're all brothers. It was an apt choice of phrase. The few women permitted to be present were all standing at the back. All of which is by way of noting that even Benjamin Netanyahu might find governing in any sort of cahoots with Itamar Ben-Gvir something of a handful. It is not yet certain that he will have to. Netanyahu is nothing if not a wily operator, ditto Israel's president, Isaac Herzog. Both will be aware that awarding cabinet posts to someone with Ben-Gvir's inclinations will spook Israel's staunchest ally, the United States. President Biden... It was and is a great friend of Israel, is a great supporter. And its newer ones, the Arab countries which Netanyahu successfully courted during his previous term. Before a vote was cast in this election, there was a consensus that it was essentially a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu. This was not an innovative analysis. Much the same had been said about the four previous elections since 2019 and might well be said again about another election a few months from now. For the moment, Netanyahu has trapped himself and his country in a corner with the toxic extremist right. He doesn't need to look far to see who led it there. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Curator. In the United States, Hispanic voters make up an increasingly large share of the population. But they are not necessarily voting the way one might think. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak reports on how the immigration and the concerns of Hispanic voters are shaping next week's congressional midterm elections. Immigration hasn't really gotten too much attention from the media in these congressional midterm elections. But in an environment as polarizing as this one, it's probably not a surprise to hear that the priorities differ wildly by political party. Immigration still resonates among conservative-inclined voters especially, which is why Republicans have been stepping up their campaigns on the topic in the run-up to next week's congressional midterm elections, also rather shamelessly linking it with crime, another topic that's high on voters' agendas. How did we get here? Low wages, high inflation, record crime, illegal immigration from places as far away as Pakistan. Our cities are a mess. Public services are a nightmare. But this ad is by the far-right group calling itself Citizens for Sanity, linked to the former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. And one of the things that's interesting about this ad is that it's actually sort of targeting Hispanic voters. You know what I see? No mas. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. There had long been this assumption that Republicans' hard line on the border under Donald Trump would turn off Hispanic voters, a growing demographic. But that's not necessarily the case. You will find that there's diversity in views among Latinos on some of these issues. So Cuban Americans may have different views on, say, the deportation of those who are in the country illegally compared with, say, Mexican Americans who are the children of immigrant parents. This is Mark Hugo Lopez director of race and ethnicity research at the Pew Research Center. 
And here, in many ways, the differences in polarization between Democrats and Republicans among Latinos mirrors what we see for the general U.S. public. And frankly, a number of other issues like abortion, about health care, about any issue around the economy. You do see some differences by partisanship among Latinos, which in many ways reflects the general U.S. mood. Beyond the topic of immigration, Mark says that while Latinos tend to view Democrats as caring more about them and working harder for their vote, they don't necessarily see a big difference between the political parties on many issues. And beyond that, it's also important to note that the issues Latinos care about are not really that different from other American voters. Immigration has never been a top issue for Latino voters in all the surveys we've done at the Pew Research Center back into the mid-2000s, and this year is no different. Latinos generally have seen the economy as the top issue in determining how they're going to vote this year, and frankly, that's not very different from the general U.S. public. This helps to explain why, in Florida, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis is on track for a second term in office. This despite taking a hard line on immigration, and engaging in political stunts, like literally flying a group of Venezuelans up to Martha's Vineyard in New England. He's now being sued by the migrants for making false promises, but the political victory appears to be his nonetheless. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been playing a similar game, busing nearly 20,000 migrants to New York City last month in a sort of challenge to progressives, who claim immigration is not a problem in the United States. Political ploys aside, it does have to be said that immigration has been one of U.S. President Joe Biden's thorniest challenges since coming to office. It started in many ways with the simple perception that Biden would be more welcoming than his hardline anti-immigration predecessor, Donald Trump. And to some extent, Biden has obliged, easing some of the restrictions that Trump had put in place, until that message resulted in even more people coming prompting Biden more recently to reimpose some of the restrictions he had eased and trying to offer legal pathways that encourage asylum seekers from Venezuela, for example, not to come to the border in the first place. That message had clearly gotten back to people in South America that if you make it to the U.S.-Mexico border, you'll be allowed in, and once you're allowed in, you'll be able to stay. So now that the door is largely closed to Venezuelans at the border, I think that will influence people's migration decisions. This is Julia Gellett of the Migration Policy Institute. I do think that people are watching to see how this works out. If, you know, this combination of Title 42 and also a parole program succeeds in diverting people from irregular migration to more regular channels that could be applied to other countries. The program she's talking about, at least in theory, could offer a way out of the immigration crisis for the United States, if it was expanded beyond Venezuelans. The idea is pretty simple. Migrants who can get private sponsors to vouch for them, also financially, will be allowed to fly to the United States directly and legally, instead of coming through the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the problems, as with so much of immigration policy in the United States, is that these parole programs have never been properly approved by Congress. Instead, Joe Biden has used various federal loopholes that Republicans could try to close again if they regain control of Congress after the midterms. The Immigration and Nationality Act limits DHS's authority to use parole on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian or significant public benefit reasons. This is Elizabeth Jacobs, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Policy for the Conservative Center for Immigration Studies and a former official within the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Congress made clear when it has continually narrowed 
DHS's discretion over the years that this is not meant to be a replacement for an immigration policy. It is meant to be used sparingly. Congressional approval would of course require the kind of grand bargain on immigration reform that has eluded so many U.S. presidents over the years. But even Elizabeth Jacobs acknowledges that this kind of carrot-and-stick approach could be palatable to conservatives if it were put to a vote. The general strategy with requiring aliens to have a supporter in the United States that can provide financial and other support to these aliens is a way to address political concerns that the general public might have. In other words, as with so many issues, there probably would be a path forward on immigration if American politicians could do a little less bickering and a little more governing. And now to the world of magazines. When the title Kring was launched in March of 1969, it built itself America's only rock and roll magazine. Through offering an alternative to mainstream music journalism, when it hit newsstands, the publication take on the genre was irreverent, blunt, and garnered legions of fans. The magazine took a pause in 1989. But now, for the first time in over 30 years, its newest print issue is available. Monaco's Maylee Evans spoke to John Martin, the CEO of Kring, to discuss the magazine's return. John began by detailing the magazine's illustrious history. We relaunched Cream in September of 2022. It was originally America's only rock and roll magazine from 1969 to 1989. It had an amazing crew of writers and journalists that came out of it, everyone from Lester Bangs to Cameron Crowe to Jan Uzelski. The list goes on and on. And Cream was the first magazine to use both the terms punk and heavy metal to describe bands. You know, so Cream was always the counterculture to the Rolling Stone mainstream music coverage. And they had a really devoted fan base for those 20 years, sort of that golden era. And it was this really beloved brand that people, you know, wished still existed. And, you know, over the last 30 years, there hasn't really been a brand or an outlet, an entertainment property to really champion rock and roll. And, you know, I think we've seen the, the results of that is there's a perception that rock and roll is dead and it doesn't exist. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So we felt the pendulum was swinging and it was high time that we brought back cream. Excellent. You say that apparently rock is dead, so is print is right there on your front cover. (laughs) Tell me a bit about the artist and sort of what was the statement you wanted to make with that first issue back on the shelves? So we talked a lot about what's on the cover. I mean, it's always the biggest conversation for a magazine. Anyone who works in magazines, you know, it's what's on the cover, what's on the cover. And, you know, we started talking a lot about, is there a band or a musician who should be on the first cover of Cream? And we came to the conclusion that there wasn't really a band or an artist in the traditional sense of a cover star that should be on the magazine. So we decided, let's do something different. Let's not have a band on the cover. Cream was coming back and, you know, there were some gatekeepers in the industry that kind of didn't believe us. And they said, you know, we'll give you access to our artist, but only if it's for a cover story. And that was pretty repulsive to myself and the editorial staff that someone would even ask that. I get it. They're doing their job, but it was gross. You know, we said, well, sorry, we're not putting anyone on the cover. So 
this is the only way for us to work together is an article in the issue if you're interested in that. And it was interesting to see there were some people that stuck to their guns and, you know, we didn't cover them. And there's some people who said, oh, yeah, we just have to ask. And yeah, I get it. We went with a new work by Raymond Pettibone, who was, you know, pre-legendary artist, started out in punk world doing Black Flag, went on to do Sonic Youth, one of my favorite bands, Annihilation Time. And then he also did massive things like the Foo Fighters. But he's a fine artist now. And he's known now more for sort of his watercolor type paintings. You know, but we had him do sort of his original pen and ink, white and black, or paintings that were the lingua franca of the punk visuals in the early 80s. And we felt that that was a very appropriate bridge from sort of the first era of cream to now. And, you know, Pettibone was always known for his kind of cryptic words on his paintings. And we talked with him about what it could be. And, you know, we, we knew we wanted to make a statement sort of confronting the almost critics that would say, wait, you're relaunching a magazine and it's about rock and roll. Those are two like dinosaur concepts. And it's not at all because this isn't actually just a magazine and rock and roll isn't just dead. You know, this is a subscription business. This is an entertainment business and rock and roll is huge. When you look at all the subgenres and you put them all back together, rock and roll is like, you know, a splintered, massively popular world, but everyone has their own little niche. You know, whether you're a fan of Metallica or you're a fan of Heim, you're both rock and roll fans. I wondered sort of about that challenge because you'll have, I guess, the readers who, who remember the magazine the first time round. It has a very fond and, and special place in, in their heart. And then you also have a new readership who kind of are coming to the magazine completely sort of fresh. What was that challenge like in kind of ensuring that there was enough in that DNA from the original magazine whilst also recognising that times have changed, audiences have changed, and I suppose the magazine not feeling like an ode or nostalgic? Well, we want to piss everyone off. You know, the older audience who might remember it, you know, we want to give them enough to sort of tip their hat to a lot of, you know, this is something that I recognize from my younger years. This is why I liked it. So there's features in there, Cream Dream, Stars Cars, the Cream Profile that existed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But we also want to do a lot of new stuff. And it's not just a nostalgia driven soft light 70s magazine here. This is the modern rock and roll magazine. It's not a modern rock magazine, but it is, you know, we do cover artists that are the majority of artists we cover are actually, you know, from the modern era. For the new audience, we want to piss them off because they've never seen anything like this. They have not seen writing and journalism in the last 20 years in the music space that was really anything but regurgitated press releases. Now, I'm 42, right? I remember that first wave of whether it was internet sites kind of coexisting with like the last wave of great print magazines that actually had voice and, you know, were a little cheeky and, you know, it wasn't all just puff pieces and it was really fun to read. We make the joke a lot, like, when was the last time you laughed when you read about music? Like rock and roll specifically is ridiculous. I mean, it is, it's a primal caveman-esque, you know, professional wrestling form of entertainment. The ridiculousness of it, whether, you know, you're a very serious artist or not, the ridiculousness of it is where the fun lies. And we want people to have fun when they read about their favorite artists or artists they've never heard of before. And if we can turn people on to new artists, whether that's from the past or from the present, 
mission accomplished. The magazine earned a reputation as, as well as being sort of like a tastemaker and showing people, I guess, new artists, but it's the irreverence. So how do you keep that voice? Is it retaining some of those writers from that first wave? Is it making sure that writers really understand the tone that you're, you're taking with this and kind of pushing them maybe past what they're used to writing? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Everyone asks us, who's the new Lester Bangs? And, you know, it's always like the question that makes the eyes roll because there is no new Lester Bangs, right? We have a lot of great writers who have their own voices and a lot of them probably never even read Lester Bangs. They're like a generation and a half or two generations later, right? But the influence is there and that influence is calling it as you see it telling the truth, not dumbing it down for the audience and, you know, speaking with your audience like they're your friend at the bar. And that's the most important way of storytelling is, you know, really breaking it down, your opinions and what you're picking up from the artist in a way that is honest and truthful. Because, look, young people can, you know, their bullshit detectors are pretty finely tuned, right? The problem is they've come to expect that everyone's bullshitting them. And, you know, with Cream, we're saying, no, this is, you know, we're just like you, right? You could probably write for Cream if you do it in an honest way. You're trying to tell a story to your friends and make your friends laugh. You're not doing a book report, right? You're not writing this for school. You're not writing this. You don't work for the record company. So, you know, we cultivate those voices and we do a thing called the thumb test. If you put your thumb over the logo, is it visibly a Cream piece? You know, and that's everything from the photography to the headline, to the lead, to the captions, to how the first graph reads, like, does it feel like a cream piece? If it doesn't pass the thumb test and it could run anywhere else, then it's not good enough for us. You know, we're not publishing a huge amount of content. We do a quarterly magazine and then we do two digital pieces a week. I mean, there's very few websites that do that because they're fundamentally different business. They're ad-driven, click-driven, and we're subscription-driven. So it's all about high-quality brands, like the best cream content that couldn't exist anywhere else. Like, what is the point of us putting out, you know, if Turnstile's going on tour and they drop their new tour dates, what's the point of us posting that? There's no point because 30 other sites already did it. We're not offering anything new. We're just contributing to the noise. That's not what we want to do. We want to offer really high quality rock and roll content for people that actually care and know that this is the only place they're going to get that story. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We're heading to Tokyo now to speak with our Fiona Wilson. She'll be telling us how Japan's new anime theme park is encouraging tourists to come back to the country. It's been so anticipated, this park. I mean, if you know anything about Studio Ghibli animation company in Tokyo, I think it's 37 now, this company. And it's made just some of the biggest films uh, that have come out of Japan in the last few decades. Films like Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle. Absolutely epic films that are, you know, huge in Japan, obviously, but uh, 
have a big soft power outside as well. So they've opened a theme park. Big surprise to everyone because they're quite publicity shy, oddly, for a film company. But they've opened a theme park in Aichi in the middle of Japan. It's actually in the, the park that was built for the 2005 Expo. And the first chunk of the park opened yesterday. So to great excitement. And the reviews are, are starting to come in now. What are the highlights out of the theme park? Well, if you know anything about the films, and I have to say, if you go, I'd recommend you watch the films first, reading about it. I've seen them all. I love them all, actually. But um, it basically, you know, takes you through. There are scenes from the films where you can photograph yourself. You know, if you know any of these films, you could appear on the train that is in Spirited Away. You can, you know, get yourself on Instagram at various sort of key scenes in uh, the films. But there's also, uh, I think something that people will love is there's a forest that's opened. And, you know, this this film, My Neighbour Totoro, which is really one of the most popular films from the studio, they've recreated the house. And if you know that film, it's an old, you know, rundown old house, magical place in the countryside. They've recreated that. Obviously, there's a shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. wouldn't, be a, wouldn't be a theme park without a load of merchandise. So people can buy all the bits and pieces. But it's interesting. They're really careful on the website to say, you know, this is not like every other theme park. There are no rides. You know, they don't want people to think they're coming to Universal Studios or, you know, Disneyland. They say, take a stroll, feel the wind, discover the wonders. I think it's a bit like the films themselves. It's not all, you know, given to you on a plate. You have to work a bit with these films. And I think it's the same with Ghibli Park. You want to know the films. You want to find out more. What kind of feedback have you heard so far? Has there been any criticism that maybe this theme park should have been done another way? Well, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that tourists are complaining about is that they're not selling tickets overseas yet. So that could perhaps be a little complaint. Uh, At the moment, you have to buy the tickets in Japan. And obviously, it's massively popular. So that will be difficult. I mean, I think the whole process of making this park has been really interesting. It's made by Goro Miyazaki, who's the son of Hayao Miyazaki, the legendary director behind Studio Ghibli. They have quite a fractious relationship. Hayao Miyazaki is pretty critical of um, everyone, including his son. So (laughs) There was some hilarity when, uh, you know, Goro said the reason he wanted to make the park was because Miyazaki Sr. announced his retirement. I have to say he's done that several times. And immediately he then said, actually, I think I'm going to make another film. So uh, Goro, the son, said, I feel like the rug's just being pulled from under my feet. You know, his idea was let's make a sort of not exactly a memorial because Miyazaki's still alive. The films are still very popular. But let's remember these films. So I think the reviews are people are hoping that more of it will open at the moment. Only three of the five sections have opened. I think it's pretty, I mean, to say it's analogue maybe is unfair. I haven't seen it in person, but I'm getting the sense that it's not all bells and whistles. You're not going to be on a roller coaster. You're not going through kind of water features. It's fairly low key in a sense. And I think that that is maybe a bit surprising to some people. I think if you know the films, you won't be surprised. There's a massive craft element to uh, Miyazaki films, Uh, you know, and of course, this incredible hand drawn element to to the films, which is partly why they're so, so loved. They create this amazing world. It's probably difficult, honestly, to recreate that world. And I know some people have said, oh, I wanted it to be more like the films. And that 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 is obviously going to be difficult. And maybe people who love the films and they do really draw you in these films and you get into that world, that anime world. Uh, maybe that will be difficult. But but let's see. I, I keep an open mind. Absolutely. The opening of this theme park is also an important statement, considering that Japan is gradually reopening to the rest of the world. How big of a boost do you think this theme park will offer? 
Well, I mean, the films are incredibly popular around the world. And then recently, I mean, you know, famous Studio Ghibli for being very controlling about the rights, but they did give up the rights to will not give up the rights, but Netflix has been streaming in some regions. They've been streaming the Studio Miyazaki films. People here were quite surprised they did that. But they they have put them on, you know, so that people can get to know them better, I think. And, you know, you just look at the value of this anime industry. It's huge. I mean, globally last year it was $24.5 billion. And they think that by 2028, that number will go up to more than $47 billion. So it's a massive, massive industry. And I think people are looking for something interesting, something new to see. So I think particularly in that bit of Japan, doesn't draw an awful lot of tourists, Aichi. It's more famous for, you know, Toyota. So uh, I think it will be interesting to get people into that that part of Japan. And I, I, I think it will be completely sold out. And if they open up the rest of the park, they, which they will, but if they open up those tickets to uh, overseas visitors, the chance of visiting it in person will get smaller and smaller. Will you be going there anytime soon? Have you booked your tickets yet? Do you know what? I will definitely be going. My kids absolutely love those Miyazaki films. And it's interesting. They're amazing, those films. You can enjoy them as a five-year-old or as an adult. It doesn't matter. There's so much to draw from those films. And Miyazaki was way ahead of his time on you know, subjects like environmentalism. So Mononoke, Princess Mononoke, really, which will be one of the new um, chunks that's opening maybe next year. So I'm definitely going. Sign me up. But at the moment, yeah, I can't get my hands on a ticket. And we head to the Salk Institute in San Diego. Ivan Carvalho visits the Louis Kahn Design Laboratory that exemplifies science and aesthetics cohabiting in harmony. In the 1950s, American virologist Jonas Salk had a profound impact on millions of lives when he developed a vaccine for polio. In 1955, over 10 million children received one or more injections of Salk vaccine. But Salk wasn't finished. The selfless Salk, who refused to patent his vaccine, soon set out to create a research center where scientists could gather to tackle the key medical challenges of the day. Gifted in 1960 with 27 acres of prime real estate by the city of San Diego that overlooked the Pacific Ocean, Salk bought in modernist architect Louis Kahn, explaining to him that he wanted a facility worthy of a visit by Picasso. Included in the brief was the need for labs that would be spacious and readily adaptable, as new technologies came into being that could be added to the campus's infrastructure. The facility had to be both simple and durable, as well as welcoming and well-lit, to provide an inspiring environment for researchers. Kahn's idea for the Institute is laid out like a monastery. Three zones were to stand apart, all facing the ocean to the west, a conference venue, living quarters, and the labs, although ultimately only the labs were built. The research area of the Salk Institute, first conceived as a pair of towers separated by a garden, evolved into two elongated blocks mirroring each other across a paved plaza. The central court is lined by a series of detached towers whose diagonal protrusions allow for windows facing westward onto the ocean. These towers are connected to the rectangular laboratory blocks by small bridges, providing passage across the rifts of the two sunken courts, which allow natural light to permeate into the research spaces below. Kahn included these courts not only as light wells, but as a reference to the cloisters of the monastery of St. Francis of Assisi, which Salk himself had admired. Completed in 1963, 
the buildings have been designed to promote collaboration, so there are no walls separating laboratories on any of the floors. The light fixtures on the roof slide along rails to reflect the open spirit of the Salk Institute's science, which today focuses on infectious diseases, cancer, and aging. Khan's handiwork is noticeable in the plaza paved in Italian travertine stone. He originally planned to fill the space with a garden, but was convinced by fellow architect Luis Barragan to leave it as a void, adorned only with a thin channel of water that bisects the plaza and draws the observer's eye toward the blue horizon of ocean and sky. Here, the visitor feels the genius of Khan, as a scientific campus gives way to a space that feels almost spiritual, and which some have described as San Diego's anonymous Taj Mahal. It is a testament to Khan, who has masterfully integrated architecture, nature, and science together. And as always, we like to have a little recipe here on The Curator as well from Food Neighborhoods this week. This time, a recipe from Melissa Thompson, the author of the new cookbook, Motherland. She shares a light and easy recipe made from simple ingredients. My name is Melissa Thompson. I'm a food writer and a cook, and I cook a lot over fire. I've just had a book come out called Motherland, which is a Jamaican cookbook that explores food within the context of Jamaica's history. So it talks all about Jamaica's history from the indigenous Jamaicans through to the Spanish, first colonized Jamaica, and then the British, and then people from Western Central Africa who were brought over during the slave trade, and then people from India and from China. And it talks about all the kind of classic dishes as well as dishes of my own creation inspired by Jamaica's ingredients and Jamaican methods and styles. And the recipe I'm going to cook today is saltfish fritters, also known as stamp and go because apparently naval officers in the British naval officers in the 18th century, if they wanted something done quickly, would bark stamp and go, stamp and go. And saltfish fritters are a really quick but delicious snack. I say quick, it does take a bit of preparation because you have to soak the salt fish. Now, soak for salt fish has always been a really important ingredient in Jamaican cooking. Um, and the type of salt fish that you get in Jamaica was called the West India Cure because quite often it would be of a very poor quality. Obviously, we're talking about pre-refrigeration, so any kind of salting, any curing would be really helpful. So you want to get about 250 grams of salt fish. Um, usually it's salt cod, and if it's salt cod, it will say salt cod. If it's salt fish, it could be another white fish like pollock or something like that. Um, if you can get salt cod, perfect. If not, salt fish will do. And then you need to soak it overnight, rinse it under cold water, and then soak it overnight to get rid of the salt, to draw the salt out into the water. You might have to change the salt a couple of times as well, just to make sure that the the end result isn't too salty and just get as much salt out as you can. Uh, You need 280 grams of plain flour, half a red onion, finely chopped, half of a red pepper, half of an orange pepper, both finely chopped. And if you've only got one pepper, if you've only got one red pepper, then you can just use the whole red pepper. That's fine. But it's nice to have a bit of different colours in there. Three spring onions, finely chopped, a pinch of ground black pepper, a pinch of salt, about 300 mils of water, and then some oil for frying. I just use a flavourless neutral oil 
vegetable oil, sunflower oil, or rapeseed oil. And then um, optional is um, lime wedges on the side for serving. Some people put a scotch bonnet into their saltfish fritters, but because I've got a young daughter who doesn't like anything kind of too hot, I, um, I serve it instead with a pepper mayo. Pepper mayo is um, just mayonnaise and pepper sauce made with scotch bonnet peppers. First of all, you want to take your soaked salt fish and give it one final rinse and put it in some water and bring it up to the boil and let it simmer for about between five and ten minutes until it's kind of soft and the and the flesh will start to flake. Leave it to cool and then flake it into a mixing bowl, checking for bones as you go. The bones are white, the flesh is white, so some can sneak in there to try to get rid of all the bones. Add the red onion, the spring onion, the red and orange pepper and the black pepper. Don't add salt just yet. Add the flour and pour water in a bit at a time, stirring in between so you don't get any lumps. Um, and you want the end result to be thick and kind of falling off the wooden spoon in lumps rather than a continuous pour because you kind of want it to be like just sort of kind of thick and that batter to hold. Take a spoon and just taste a tiny little bit for seasoning and add salt if it's needed and keep checking if it's until it's seasoned enough. Pour the oil into a frying pan so it's about half a centimetre to a centimetre deep. Heat it over a medium to a medium high heat and spoon about a dessert spoon of mixture into the oil. You can make them a bit bigger if you want to have it for, say, brunch and you want to serve it with egg, maybe some avocado salsa on the side. Um, or you can have them kind of quite small, which is perfect for snacks or canapes. And then you want to cook them for about three minutes until they're firm, until they kind of, they're not sticking. Turn them over and cook them for another three minutes. And turn them again and cook them until they're a nice golden brown, maybe another couple of minutes on each side. Remove them, put them onto a plate lined with kitchen towel to soak, and then keep cooking until all of the mixture is used up. And serve them immediately. Like I said, you can serve them just with mayo on the side or, or this pepper mayo, which is really nice. If you want to make more, you can double the recipe. You can make as many as you want and you can freeze them. So what I do is I cook them and I just cook them until they're cooked through, not till they're browned. And then I remove them, I drain them as before, and then I leave them to core and then I freeze them. And then when you want to eat them, just take them out, defrost them, and then you can kind of like brown them off so they're nice and crispy. And that's it. It's a really easy recipe, really delicious. And it's it's a Jamaican classic. So I urge you to try them. You won't regret it. And finally on today's show, we have the results of the 2022 iteration of New Zealand's annual Bird of the Year contest. Yes, and we have, of course, our Kiwi, David Stevens, telling us all about it. I wanted to teach you how to pronounce said Ugh. winner. Uh, now, actually, uh, to, to give you some credit, uh, live on air, which will, which will <coughs> help, uh, your pronunciation of Te Reo Māori has been very good. So, well, uh, thank you. And, and I'm going to give you uh, a way in here. So first, think of the vegetable... The P. The P, as I often okay, do. Yep. yep. And now think you're slowing down your horse twice. Whoa, whoa. whoa. Now oh. put that together and we have the... p wo Fantastic. That's okay. the winner. That's the, that's the big winner this year. In uh, a, a year that was dubbed the Underbird Year, the idea oh, being that, uh, that the lesser recognised birds might get a... Uh, leg up or a wing up in this year's competition. Is this the reason why it was shamelessly fixed? Well, this is the thing, and you mentioned the controversy, and they love to kind of court this controversy because mm. it gets them headlines, doesn't it? But uh, no, this year they were really trying to push that there are lots of birds you might not have heard of, this one being one of the certified underbirds. And the reason that 
perhaps it did so well is that this year, one of your top five, it was a single transferable vote system, <laughs> uh, one of your top five had to be a certified underbird. So perhaps where this bird got so many of its votes, maybe it was just the consensus choice in the underbird category. I mean, it, it is the nature of transferable vote that everybody's second or third favourite tends to be the one that gets up rather than you know, something which arouses particular passions. Exactly. And so this was actually second uh, when all the first choice votes were counted and uh, second to the Korora, which is a penguin. And uh, with once the once the second choices were counted, uh, the Piwowo took it out. It's um, to, to let you know a little bit about this bird, it's very small. Please. It keeps getting likened to the size of a particular biscuit from New Zealand, a mallow puff. It, right, this is, this is no help no, to anybody really outside help, New it? Zealand. Um, it's about 20 grams. Okay. That so helps it's, for anyone it's, on metric. It is small. It is small. It's, uh, it's, it's only really seen in the Southern Alps and the kind of highlands of the, of the South Island. This, this I knew would uh, anger you. It doesn't really like to fly so well, much. Well, see, I, I was about to ask, because it is a question you would only ask in the context of a New Zealand Bird of the Year contest, the apparently ridiculous-sounding question, can the damn thing actually fly, and apparently so it can't. It can. It can fly. It is a flying bird, but it likes to just hop about on the rocks. Its, it's English translation is an is a alpine rock wren. Um, and I think maybe it's part of the wren species to kind of jump around a bit. But so that, it's, it's lazy, basically. You could say that, I, I suppose. Um, the controversies you've, you've spoken on a little bit, um, this guy won with the a, with a, with a single transferable vote system. Some people mm-hmm. don't like that. They want a first-past-the-post system. I'm, I'm all for the single transferable. I think it's a more fair result. But let's not let's not get into that too much. Last year, as you said, a bat's not a bird. I agree with you there. <laughs> uh, I'm glad they they nip that in the bud quickly. And this year, the kakapo, which is which is a big favourite, um, was not allowed in the competition. It's won twice, and there was a worry that it was going to kind of skew the vote all the way over there again. Now, this the, is a very fat parrot which cannot fly. It's it's all it's always called a, the the world's fattest parrot, which I think is a weird judgment descriptor rather than saying the largest or heaviest <laughs> parrot is to always call it the fattest parrot the the birds are often also backed by political candidates so maybe this is a this is a newer thing it hasn't been in, in previous years um, but just to let you know where the kind of political spectrum lay the the leader of the opposition uh, Christopher Luxon backed the rye bill this is mm-hmm. one of the only birds in the world apparently to have an asymmetrical beak so um, i don't know what that says about the opposition maybe they're trying I am, to go i am D- david as an australian i am rising magnificently above the inbreeding jokes over here uh chloe swarbrick a green party mp backed the korora which ended up in, in second place and jacinda ardern now she wouldn't endorse a bird which is interesting um she has kind of at times not took taken aside on uh, certain issues but she has when questioned said that the uh, black petra was her favourite because it's the most bogan of the birds. <laughs> That's a reason. So, interesting there. <clears throat> uh, I don't even know if we've got time to go about translating that South Seas euphemism for our, our, our global visitors, but uh, for our global listeners, but they can look it up. Um, we do actually have, in order to paint pictures with sound here a bit, an audio file of what the official Kiwi Bird of the Year sounds like.
that that's understated, verging on the self-effacing. Um, I do want to ask, what is this likely to mean uh, for the Piwowo, though? Because it, it is, as you were suggesting, a fairly obscure, even hipster uh, creature. Is it, is its habitat now going to get trampled to mulch by people trying to see one yeah it's 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 huge now there's there's uh photographers outside its its store <laughs> no it's it's so it, it's as i say it's it's only kind of seen i mean most people won't have ever seen one of these birds it's very rare to see them they're in the the as i say the south island highlands in the alpine environment but the idea behind this bird getting this recognition and the hope behind this bird getting recognition is actually it's a bit of a climate change vote it really mm. is because this this is a bird that you know if climate change continues as it is it's its habitat will get smaller it'll introduce more pests and or more rodents and things that can actually take out a bird that chooses not to fly even though it can uh, <laughs> when it's on the ground so it's a, it really is a vote uh, this whole competition is about awareness for birds and the kind of the species maybe we don't know but also the species that are endangered in New Zealand and so this is meant to bring some awareness to the fact that there are these amazing rare species up in the mountains in New Zealand and actually we should be trying to look after them uh, just finally throwing ahead to next year do you want do you want to like lay down an early tip for 2023's bird of the year here's the thing i don't think they can keep the kakapo out two years uh, in a row and so i think it'll be back and it'll probably be looking to settle some scores so i think that'll get a big surge in votes um i'm always behind the piwaka waka the fantail mm-hmm. so that'll be getting my vote again next year we'll see and that's it for The Curator this week. The show was produced by David Stevens, yes, the one from the birds, and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>